Welcome to The Lusander Show. These first few episodes are going to be interviews that I did at the 5th Annual Midwest Peace of Liberty Fest last year. I was really hoping to put them out a while back, but between procrastination, stuff coming up, and losing the disc a few times, that didn't happen. It didn't work out like I had hoped. I'm hoping to knock them out over the next week or two. Uh, You may hear a little bit of background noise in there from time to time from the campground, but it's not too bad. It goes along with recording interviews at a festival. After the festival interviews, I plan on moving toward my regular style of content, but I will be recording more interviews at the 6th Annual Midwest Peace of Liberty Fest. Uh, Speaking of which, here's my commercial for it. The 6th Annual Midwest Peace of Liberty Fest will be held at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo from Thursday, June 21st through Monday, June 25th. Scheduled speakers include Scott Horton of Antiwar.com, Brett Pinot of the School Sucks podcast, Dana Martin, the Radical Unschooler, and C.J. Kilmer of the Dangerous History podcast will be returning for another visit. Uh, I also believe Nick Hazelton and Jim Cunnigan are returning, and Luis Fernando Mises and Derek Bros will be making their first appearances. Of course, there will be other activities like aerial yoga, a disc golf trip, and the usual outdoor activities along with bacon. Lots of bacon. So it promises to be a a, a pretty good trip. There's going to be quite a few people that I've chatted with. They're going to be coming back. There's going to be a bunch of newbies coming out that I'm really excited to meet. I always get a kick out of meeting my imaginary friends from the internets and finding out that they actually are real. So it's going to be a good time. Uh, By the time you hear this, I don't know if registering online will still be feasible. But if you need more information, go to mplfest.org. That's Mike Papa Lima Fest.org. And as I said, this year promises to be a very good time. I I think um, anybody that can get out there, you'll enjoy it. Trust me. By the way, this episode that I'm releasing today, uh, this is going to be my interview with Mary Ruart from the 5th Annual Midwest Peace of Liberty Fest. Her website is ruart.com. That's R-U-W-A-R-T dot com. And we talked about her book, Death by Regulation, which was the topic of her presentation. And uh, we talked about a couple other things in there, but it's mostly about, about that book. Anyway... Here's the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Speaking with Mary Ruart at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, Mary was the candidate for the LP for president in 2008, and she spent 19 years as a research scientist at Upjohn Corporation. Welcome to the show, Mary. Nice to to finally meet you. It's good to be here. Okay. So you just finished your presentation a little while ago, and tell, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what you covered today. Well, the title was How to Slash Healthcare Costs by 80% Virtually Overnight. And the way that we do that is we get rid of the regulations that harm us instead of help us. What I did in my presentation was I used as an example 
the area in which I was most well-versed, which is the pharmaceutical industry. And basically, in 1962, amendments were passed to the Food and Drug Act that increased the development time of drugs from four years to 14 years. So when we were looking at new drugs for the AIDS epidemic, some people couldn't wait. So they went to black market chemists instead. And by the time the FDA finally gave us permission to test our drugs in people, every AIDS patient in the country who wanted them had already had them and was resistant. Sounds like the Dallas Buyers Club, that movie. Exactly. Now in California, the FDA was kind of hands off, but in Dallas or in areas where the distributors were not well protected by um, the AIDS movement in terms of publicity, um, sometimes they were taken down pretty harshly. And that's what you saw in the Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah, I'm watching that movie and there's people that are probably, well, we need to listen to the government. Government knows what's best. And by the end of that movie, I imagine they were probably like, oh, my God, if half of this is true, the FDA should just be shut down. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, of course, that's the most public incident. Cancer patients actually sued the FDA about 10, 15 years later. And they wanted to basically have the right to take drugs that were in clinical testing had been safety tested in humans, but not effectiveness tested yet. And they said the Constitution of the United States guaranteed them life and that that couldn't be taken away without due process. They sued, uh, you know, there were several uh, different, uh, um, um, how can I say this? They, they, you know, they won, there was an appeal, it kind of went on for a while, but the bottom line was the court said that we don't have the right to save our lives without approved drugs. That's unbelievable. I think Bob Higgs has written about the cost of uh, the, the, the approval time when it comes to uh, uh, getting medications approved, uh, particularly for heart disease. Mm -hmm. And that I think he was able to quantify a number of people that likely had died of waiting for approval mm -hmm. that may have lived at least longer had they had the had they had the permission to treat themselves exactly exactly there's been several researchers who did really pioneering work um, before I was actually able to make a calculation based on some recent publications of how many lives the current drugs on the market save so you can now calculate the difference between this four years that it used to take and the 14 years that it now takes by decade and calculate 7.7, I'm sorry, 6.7 million people from 1962 to 2009 have died prematurely because of the delays. But even worse than that is the loss of innovation. And of course, you can, we don't know exactly how much innovation we've lost, but we know it's at least 50%. It's probably closer to 80%. And depending on what assumptions you make about how effective these drugs are, every single person that has died since 1962 has been affected and lost years of their lives to these regulations. Um, or, you know, at the very most conservative estimate, at least one out of four. Okay. How specifically is this impacting regulation? Because the people that don't really understand economics or they don't understand how regulation works, what's, what's the, the gears, the meat and potatoes that's actually impacting the innovation? Well, I can give you an example from my own 
research. The FDA actually called me up and said they were very excited about what I was working on, which was prostaglandins and liver disease, and they wanted to help my company put this on the market. But you know, we couldn't because when you have a drug that cures people for the first time, or at least helps their disease, you don't know how much to give. You don't know how long you have to give it. You don't know what you have to look at to prove that yes, it's doing what it says it does. And you don't know how many years you need to treat. Like liver disease takes a long time to mm -hmm. build up, takes a long time to, you know, to cure, at least in our animal institute. So you have a lot of unknowns. And if you do a clinical study that takes years to do, and you don't get everything right, you won't get the statistical significance that the FDA requires, which means you have to start all over again. And if you do that, your drug's off patent and goes generic the first day it's on market. Well, you're not going to recover your costs. So Upjohn decided not to pursue that, even though the FDA was willing to really push and help us. Because when they did the math, they figured that the chances were very slim that they could beat the patent clock. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not a big fan of IP for, for numerous reasons, mm -hmm. and, and I suspect that it would be much less of an issue if you did not have all these onerous regulations exactly. and barriers. Yeah. Um, kind of going off of that subject, mm -hmm. but still on it a little bit, how many medications out there, how often do you see things that are improvements of previous knowledge, or I, I don't want to say technology because medication is not really technical, technology, but uh, how much of it is expansion of previous technology? Well, actually, a lot of drugs improve slowly over time. For example, a drug might be have to take in four days, uh, four times a day when you're you first have the drug out, then you get to a drug that only has to be taken once a day, mm -hmm. and you know, then you have other improvements too. Like for example, I'm, I'm thinking when I'm speaking about the acid inhibiting uh, drugs. So in the beginning, with the first few, maybe decreased acid secretion by 25, 30, 40%. Now you can actually take a drug that will really wipe it out. Now, of course, I don't think that's a good thing to do on a regular basis, but mm -hmm. you know, depending on what you need, you have options now, which you didn't have before. Um, and then, of course, there's different class of drugs, like there's many different classes of drugs for heart disease today, which we didn't have at one time. And that also is good because heart disease uh, and blood pressure changes can be caused at several different points in our biology. So you want to have options to hit each one because some people may be genetically disposed to having their control point at a different point than other people do. So you want all those options. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that the, that the approval time has gone from four years to 14 years. What are some of the obstacles that have been placed in the, in the race to market? Well, the biggest one probably is the effectiveness studies. Uh, because the FDA requires so much information when you do these studies that each patient literally has a book uh, that where all the uh, different um, tests that you do on them and all of their different blood chemistries and everything are kept. So it's, it's quite an operation and quite an expensive thing to do. And what's been happening is the FDA is increasing the number of data points you need for each patient as time goes on. So it gets harder and harder and more expensive and longer all the time. Okay. Do you think this is a matter of them saying, well, more information must be better, so let's demand more information? Or is this stuff that actually helps? It's really the FDA's concern is their neck is in a noose. When these 1962 amendments were passed, 
the FDA had to sign on the dotted line to approve a drug. Before that, they didn't. If they just didn't speak up before the time clock of six months ran out, the drug went on the market. So now they have to sign on the dotted line and put their neck in the noose. So if, if that drug has a problem and Congress gets letters from their constituents, hey, you know, this drug isn't safe, then Congress gets on the FDA and specifically on the people who have approved the drug. So, you know, basically the FDA is between a rock and a hard place. So they go, oh, well, we just better require lots more studies. If anything looks out of whack at all, we're going to have to have more and more and more studies. So that if we have to go before Congress, we can show, hey, we required 10 years of studies here. Uh, you know, what else could we do? And the, and the problem is people think drugs can be safe and effective. There's no drug that's safe for everyone. There's no drug that's effective for everyone. And until we realize that, you know, as patients, and recognize that anything we take could be harmful to our particular individual biology, or it might not work for us, then I don't think we're going to have a realistic view of what drugs can do and not do. They're very powerful, and that makes them work. But it, it also makes them dangerous. <laughs> it, it, it's a magic pill expectation. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Because I... Me personally, if, if there's side effects from most medications, I'm probably going to experience them. Uh, I, when I look at the when I look at the, the side effects that they're on the side of the bottle or, or in the on the box, I look at it, I'm like, yep, I know I'm gonna get that. Because I've I've had problems with my medications in the past. I can't take cholesterol medications because I'll get horrible leg cramps. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I I quit eating like an idiot, and and my cholesterol numbers are a lot better than they used to be. I'm not breaking the, the the meter anymore when I get tested, but there there is a, the the notion that well I can take a pill and everything's going to be better. And I, I think you really touched on something that's very important is having the realistic expectation expectations. And I think it's the fast food culture that exists with you can drive through, get your food, and be on your way. And eating as you're going down the road, people have the same expectations out of medication. I'm going to take a pill and I should be better. It, it, it should cure me. And as you mentioned, people's physiology varies and, and not everybody is going to react the same way. Some, right. are, some are going to get better, some are not going to get better. Mm -hmm. And it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Well, but, the FDA, unfortunately, I think, um, helps create that expectation because they talk about drugs being safe and effective. <laughs> it's just, it gives, the, it gives the consumer who doesn't understand how drugs really work the idea that it should be so. Yeah, it's a false sense of security. Well, I mean, government in general provides a false sense of mm -hmm. security because it promises that it's going to keep you safe from every hobgoblin and boogeyman either real or imagined, and it never does. No, it can't. I mean, it's un an unrealistic expectation. And usually, the things that are put in place to implement that harm you. For, and that's very true in pharmaceutical regulations. So all these extra 10 years of study. I mean, if drugs were really safer, we might, uh, we might think that's a good idea. But, you know, they aren't. If you look at the withdrawal rates, you know, the rate at which drugs are taken off the market after they're approved, it was about 2.5% before the amendments were passed. Mm -hmm. Now it's about 3.4%. Those numbers probably aren't different, but you can at least say with some confidence that the withdrawal rate did not go down after the yeah. amendments. Well, it's like when OSHA came out about, the, I think, the decrease in workplace injuries, they were going down about 3% each year before OSHA became a thing and then after OSHA was was brought about and brought safety to the workplace they could continue to go down for about three percent each year 
So they they rode the trend and tried to take credit for it. That's right. So with, with the approval process, and as you mentioned, the FDA having to sign on the dotted line saying, yes, mm -hmm. this is good, uh, that probably creates a major incentive for them to not approve medications. Exactly. And that's why you have 10 more years of studies than you used to, because if something goes wrong, they need a way to defend themselves. And it's really not fair to expect them not to approve drugs that then are shown to have side effects because after all we really can't predict from small studies in people how bad it's going to be when we give drugs to large numbers of people and also then add on top of that more drugs because you see pharmaceutical companies really don't want to develop anything that isn't a lifestyle drug anymore. Lifestyle drugs when you take for many years, not mm -hmm. for a few weeks. And that's because they can hardly recoup their development costs. The development costs are going up exponentially as the FDA adds more and more studies every year. So basically we're going to get to a point where it's just going to be unaffordable to develop a drug. Okay. So what if you have a, a, a group of young mavericks and renegades that, that they've been in the business for a while and they, and they want to revolutionize everything and turn the world upside down and, and start producing these medications that can't be done and then all of a sudden they, they run into the Berlin Wall of government regulations. How are they supposed to do this? Well, I mean, there's no way that you can easily develop medications today in the U.S without FDA approval. You can't make claims for even vitamins. Uh, you know, you were talking about the statins a moment ago. Mm -hmm. Well, if you if you want to get rid of those muscle cramps or at least decrease the chance you'll get them, you take, um, um, a, you know, basically something your body makes called coenzyme Q. Coenzyme Q10, some people know it as. CoQ10, yeah. CoQ10, Yeah, yes. they have that at the, uh, at the vitamin counter in Wally World. That's right. Now, you would think, ah, oh, this natural substance protects us against some of the side effects of statins. Why not put them together in a pill? Well, if they wanted to do that, the FDA would have to have the whole thing go through the approval process again. Another 14 years. You got it. So that's why now adapters in the know prescribe CoQ10 to their statin patients because they know that will help. Uh, with the side effects, but a lot of doctors don't know that because the manufacturers of CoQ10 are forbidden by law to go to the doctor and tell them that. You know, just like drug reps go and to the doctors and tell them about their product, mm -hmm. vitamin manufacturers who want to do that are not allowed to do it. It's against the law unless they go through that approval process. Now, the people who make fish oil decided they would try that. What they did is they modified fish oil just a little bit chemically so that when the body took it in, it would go back to fish oil because the body would get rid of that extra chemical group. And now, you know, there's two companies that have done that and they go, they can go to the doctors and say, our fish oil is the only FDA approved fish oil that will, um, you know, I think they're for decreasing triglycerides, which is a fat in your blood that's supposed to uh, predispose you to heart disease. Yeah, that's one of my problems is the triglycerides. Mm -hmm. That that's probably that probably more than uh, mm -hmm. the uh, HDL and LDL. And you know you could take. I mean, this is one of the things uh, nutritionists might recommend. Might recommend that you take fish oil for that. And if you wanted to go and get the highest quality fish oil on the market, you would pay as much for it as your copay for the prescription fish oils, unless mm -hmm. you have a very um, aggressive. <laughs> um, uh, pharmaceutical drug clause in your insurance. 
Yeah, and, and most people don't. No, and most people don't. So, so now, now we have doctors prescribing this prescription fish oil, and it's costing, of course, insurers a lot of money. And of course, that indirectly, that's going to raise prices of insurance, which is going to cost consumers more. Mm -hmm. Well, and also the, the the fact that insurance is being used to cover maintenance instead of instead of being a transfer of risk for a catastrophic loss, mm -hmm. as it was originally intended. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, it used to be something that would get you through an emergency, and now it's a Cadillac that has to take you around everywhere. Mm, that's right. And, that's right. And people don't understand that. Well, if I want all this different stuff, I have to pay for it. It's, it's just like back when you could buy a car without all the options, you get the stripped-down Amish version, where instead of a cigarette layer, they give you a baby bick on a on a string tied to the radio knob. But uh, I, you go in, you get the you get the order a car with all the luxury options on there, yeah, it's going to cost a lot more than the basic version. And, and people understand that, but they don't understand that with health insurance, when you cover all these different things, to include annual physicals, office visits, and all this stuff, and, and the underwriters, or, well, the, actu the actuaries are, are looking at the potential cost of this, and they factor in the underwriting based upon, upon uh, pre-existing health conditions and stuff that's common for your area and everything else that goes along with it yeah that's how it gets so expensive and people don't understand that i mean the fast food culture well i want something dirt cheap you know i, I want something that i pay five dollars and pull out of the drive-through with it mm -hmm. well so. and of course that's part of the problem is uh, you know the fast food culture i mean that's not exactly the healthiest way to uh, nourish our bodies either so we need to really take charge of our health and think about what we want to do and I think one of the problems is people want to go to the doctor and get a pill that's going to fix everything uh, that's wrong with them and because of that mentality, that treatment mentality, and because again of the regulations, we don't emphasize prevention. There's a lot of preventative mm -hmm. things we could do, but again, remember that the manufacturers of vitamins can't go to doctors and share that information without running uh, afoul of the FDA. Yeah, I spent many years eating just garbage and also following the government food pyramid, which is which isn't really a good idea either. And over the past couple of years or so, I've I've really tightened up my eating habits. I've never been real big on a lot of junk food, but uh, getting away from the grains and breads and stuff like that. Uh, traveling is the worst because it's hard to get good healthy food when you're traveling. It's it's a lot of drive-through type stuff like that. So um, I'm I'm not. Uh, perfect eater but for the most part I do pretty darn good and I've seen the results from it mm -hmm. so exactly. um, going back to the to the approval process and liability for the FDA folks um, with the when a medication is pulled off the market what are the repercussions for the people that signed on the dotted line and said that it was good to go well it depends um, nobody really gets fired but they can be put in front of a kind of a virtual firing squad in front of Congress. Oh, oh, you mean the Congressional Hindsight Committee? Yeah, basically. Okay, yeah. <laughs> basically, yes. So, you know, um, in fact, that process might actually happen before the drug is withdrawn and will encourage a withdrawal. And, of course, if you think about it, the same people, basically, who, are, who had approved the drug are the ones who decide to take it off. So there's a lot of... Um, <laughs> There's a lot of conflict of interest, shall we so, say. So they have to admit that they were wrong. It's almost a public admission, so mm -hmm. to speak. Yes. I mean, it's very hard. I mean, obviously, it's very bad publicity for the FDA. Although, in some cases, uh, 
they actually are lauded for taking it off the market in times when there might have been something wrong to begin with. I mean, Vioxx is a very good example of this. There were um, people at the FDA who really felt Vioxx was a dangerous drug, and there was some evidence uh, for that. Two years after the drug was on the market, um, an oversight committee collated all the studies to see you know, just how bad it was, and they came out with the information that Vioxx was causing heart attacks, not preventing them. It took another, I think, two years before it was actually pulled by, off the market. It wasn't pulled off by the FDA. It was pulled off by the manufacturer. Do you know if doctors had, had stopped prescribing it once it became known, or at least known in their circles, that there, were, there was a problem with it, or did they just keep on going? I, I don't think it was widely appreciated that, that definitive data was out there. Okay. You know, I mean, if you think about how doctors operate, they either have to hear about results like that at a convention of some sort, read it in their medical journal, or another doctor has to tell them that. And considering how busy doctors are, mm -hmm. sometimes none of those things happen. So it wasn't really until it was pulled from the market. And the manufacturer pulled it from the market because really killing people is bad for business. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, so, go figure. Um, a lot of people point to some of the numbers that are out there and think that the Vioxx manufacturers made money. Uh, but if you take all of the lawsuits and all of the settlements and all of the different things, it's pretty clear they did not make money on Vioxx. They lost money. And that's something that people, again, have a misconception about. Yeah. Going back to a previous uh, question, and I kind of got off the subject on it. Do you think it's possible for a new pharmaceutical company to start up here in America today? Uh, what, would, what would it actually take for a new pharmaceutical company to be able to break into the market and, and, and get past those barriers? Uh, at least $2.5 billion per product and a willingness to put in the 14 years. Per product? Per product. So you're saying that they would have to be in business for 14 years before they could even sell anything? Yes, but what actually happens today is startup biotechs do what's called a proof-of-concept study. In other words, they go just as far as they have to to get the interest of big pharma. And then one of the big pharma companies will license it from them. Because what's happening, when, like when I was at Upjohn, we spent a lot of time doing research and then got our products out. Now the big companies are excellent at getting through the FDA. They've had, what, 50, sometimes 100 years of experience now, right? Not to mention their former executives are at the FDA. Yes, that often happens. So so they know how to get through the process. Uh, the small startup biotechs know how to do the science. And so what's happening now is the, the big firms are not doing as much science. They're waiting for the biotech companies to present them with some options. And of course, a lot of these biotech companies go out of business. But the ones that survive generally are selling off to Big Pharma. Now, they have to do this, and Big Pharma, you know, gets a huge percentage for doing that. Uh, what they'd like to do, obviously, is take it all the way. And they could if the regulations were more like they were in 1962. What happened after these regulations were put into place is the small companies, which had been putting forth about 10% of the new drugs, uh, of course, basically folded. They weren't able to do that anymore. 
Okay. Now let's talk about what it would take to actually deregulate the industry and, and to, to just go through and slash out all these barriers to entry and everything else. Yes, there's um, one thing. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not very supportive of the political process. I have absolutely zero faith in it. If I could have negative faith in the political process, I would. I, I, I just don't have that capability. What is it going to take to get rid of this nonsense, in, in your opinion? In my opinion, the only thing that will actually get rid of it is having the consumer have the absolute authority to choose at which point they purchase a pharmaceutical. In other words, they get to decide if they want to purchase it, if it's FDA approved, if it's not FDA approved, at whatever stage of development they want. Once they have that power, the things are shifted because until that happens there have been court precedents and things that even if we like got rid of the amendments those court precedents would still allow the FDA to manipulate the process and draw it out and they would have to for their own protection these mm -hmm. things we talked about earlier so how to get to that point to where the consumer has the power and the FDA you know go back to uh, pre-1962 whatever uh, or just abolish the FDA, or just abolish the whole darn government for that matter. <laughs> I, how, how, do, how do we get to that point? What do you see being the catalyst uh, where the, the statocrats and Mordor on uh, the Potomac release the power? Well, I think it's actually starting to happen. You know, we had the AIDS patients, of course, rebelling and going to the black market. Then we had the cancer patients suing. It's true that they lost, but the Goldwater Institute in Arizona has sort of resurrected what they wanted to do. It's called the Right to Try Amendment, and they're passing it state by state. I think something like 35 states have passed it already. It gives the consumer the power to, the terminally ill patient, I should say, the power to negotiate with the pharmaceutical company directly as long as that, as long as that uh, drug is in the FDA process. So, and, and as long as the safety testing has been done. Now, you would think that would be a pretty strong position, but of course, since the FDA ultimately controls whether or not the drug is approved, the pharmaceutical companies are still afraid that if they work with the right to try patients, that the FDA will slow down the approval of their drug. But you know, baby steps are happening, I guess is what I'm saying, and I think what's going to happen is this movement is going to continue because consumers, especially terminally ill patients, want this choice. And really, if, we, if you think about it for a moment, if we uh, really pushed for that congressionally, you know, if, we, if enough people got together and organized and pushed this, I think Congress might actually pass it. <laughs> hmm. um, you know that that the consumer can choose, and it might. I'm sure at first there would be some safeguards, what they call safeguards, which means your doctor would probably have to sign off or something else. But really, until that happens, there's going to be problems with getting the medications we want. Now, will there be some people who will choose poorly? Yes. Will there be some people who have more side effects? Yes, but right now the side effect we have is every person who has died since 1962 has probably had years shaven off their lives by these amendments. Overregulation is just as deadly as a, quote, bad pharmaceutical. In other words, regulations have side effects too. Yes, yeah. So. What is it? Ludwig von Mises says, each new intervention is an attempt to deal with the unintended consequences of the previous interventions. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and 
really everybody's caught in the trap if you want to think about it that way. I mean, consumers obviously are caught in the trap, but the FDA is too. I mean, they, you know, as we talked about, they get taken to task because they're expected to not approve any drugs that have major side effects. That's an impossible task. Mm -hmm. yeah, they can't do it. Congress is expected to protect everybody uh, via their legislation um, and, and in such a way that no, quote, bad drugs get on the market. Yeah. It's not possible. And Congress is supposed to be responsive to the, to the patients that take the medication that expect it to be a magic pill and cure everything without any side effects. So you have... Uh, a, a circle of dumb, I guess it would be. We're all, yeah, we're all responsible to some extent. So, I mean, waking up and recognizing there's no such thing as a drug that's totally safe and effective. Basically, just recognizing that concept is going to shift how we look at this. Mm-hmm. So, alrighty. Um, you have a couple of books for sale here, and then you also have another one that will be, will be coming out soon, or is it already yes. out? No, it's not out okay. yet. In the spring, uh, Death by Regulation, basically a lot of the information we're talking about, including the calculations of how I figured out that at least one out of four of us are affected uh, by these regulations, and more probably everyone. Uh, that'll be coming out in the spring. And then the book I have, the two books I have here, Healing Our World, is basically uh, the libertarian philosophy in, uh, in, in a different way. The subtitle of this book is The Compassion of Libertarianism. And that's because basically it really emphasizes how the libertarian philosophy has been effective in the real world, which really is the only yardstick that means anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in just about every area we want to uh, um, enrich the poor, not just give them a welfare check, but enrich the poor, uh, deter crime, diffuse terrorism, and protect the environment. So it really is oriented towards those issues that libertarians don't necessarily deal with well. And uh, basically one of the messages is that universal peace and prosperity are well within our grasp. Mm -hmm. And it's very exciting from my standpoint, because when I put this all together, I realized that if we had a more libertarian society, we would, conservatively speaking, have somewhere between three times and 18 times as much wealth as we currently have. I mean, it's hard to even imagine having three times as much wealth as we currently have. I mean, thinking in terms of three times your paycheck or three times your house, mm -hmm. you know, the quality of your house and things. It's well, amazing. Well, people look at government as a magic pill of its own, and they say, oh, there's a welfare program. Therefore, that poor people are being taken care of. And what they're not seeing is that the program is a, a disincentive to going out there and, and working. And I, I've worked with homeless folks. Uh, I've been homeless myself. I spent nine months in a shelter a few years back. And uh, seeing what goes on in there, it's... It's just really amazing. It's it it the, the the welfare pushers are are as bad as any stereotypical dope pusher. I mean, they're they're, they're more aggressive at pushing welfare than, than the drug dealers are at pushing right? their product. And when you when you wind up like let's say you're on a Section Eight voucher and and food stamps and stuff like that, you got to stay poor to be on there. And mm -hmm. and once you've been in the system for a little while and and you've lost the ability to take care of yourself, or even worse, you've lost the confidence that you can take care of yourself and go out there and, and pay your own bills and maintain a, 
uh, utilities and rent and put food in the fridge and stuff like that. It becomes a lot easier to just rely on the government to take care of that. And what that really does to a person, I mean, just destroying their confidence, but if you're not working, you're not doing anything with your time, if you're physically and, and mentally inactive, and that really destroys you too. Mm -hmm. So right. it's, and it's, 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 welfare is worse than poverty. Well, and you know, I used to rent to some welfare tenants and I was actually, I was very naive about the system. You know, I thought, oh, well, at least they get to stay home and take care of their kids, you know. And what actually happens was the, the young people, uh, the young women would come to me and say, well, yes, I'm 16. Uh, I'm going to have my baby in a few months and when I do I'm going to be able to establish my own household and everything and so they wanted to rent and then they they'd have the baby and find out the welfare check didn't quite cover um, a baby so they'd have the second baby mm -hmm. this is here in Michigan what I yeah. do this and then they'd have the third baby and then after the third baby you know the welfare didn't increase so they'd have the three kids before they were they were 21 and then the light bulb went off went, oh, I'm going to be poor all my life if I stay on welfare. I want to get yeah. a job and get out there. Well, that was good, but the problem is now they have three youngsters. They're, they don't have a high school diploma because they quit to establish their household, right, in the mm -hmm. welfare. And so they go out into the workforce, and, of course, they can only start really at a fairly low wage. It's not going to pay them for child care. So unless their mother or aunt or somebody comes forward and takes care of their children for them while they're at work, they really can't even get out there and get off welfare. Now had they if they if they are lucky enough to have somebody to take care of the children, then they have a chance because if they get a job and get promotions, at some point they will start making a reasonable enough wage that they can actually feel like they might be able to have a middle class life, but they can't even start that. I mean, they've kind of trapped themselves by having the three children when they didn't, quote, know any better, because, of course, how would you know that uh, when you're 16? You you know, you look at the amount they give you in a welfare check, it seems like a lot of money. Yeah, and then there's also a lot of people that welfare is a generational thing. That's correct. Uh, a lady that I worked with down in Detroit, she was talking about, and she's a little bit older than me, she's probably early 50s now, and she was talking about how when she was in, like, her senior year of high school, they are teaching kids how to fill out their welfare applications and you know like like instead of college applications here's your welfare application oh that's bad i haven't heard that yeah one. and that was in detroit oh my goodness. but anyway uh she didn't want to fill out all that paperwork and she decided it was probably easier to go get a job because <laughs> but but I mean, that's what she did and, and she really made something of herself mm -hmm. so it's but it's People criticize libertarians for saying you know, that there shouldn't be welfare. And really, in a lot of cases, libertarians are saying you shouldn't have the destruction that's caused by welfare. Exactly, exactly. Well, and the thing is, that's what's different about private welfare. See, when you have a government system, they have to treat everybody the same. But in the olden days, uh, when welfare was private, you went and you presented your case, and then if you were, quote, what they called a worthy person, um, you know, there was somebody who was actually trying to make it, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, then people helped you out. Now, if you, it seemed like you were just one of the rounders that went around, that yeah. word comes from going around all the charitable organizations just trying to get a handout, uh, then they 
you know, after a while, your, your story didn't sound so good and you didn't get anything. So I think that was a really, a really good way of trying to help people. And the thing is, the people who really need the help aren't getting it. For example, uh, homeless people, they don't have an address. Therefore, they're automatically disqualified from receiving welfare. I mean, if anybody needs help, it's our homeless. It's not the people who are, you know, living with their brother or something. Uh, so that just that just blows me away. It's mostly the private sector that's taking care of the homeless, uh, as near as I can tell, and the religious, you know. Yeah. Back in the old days, the, the community knew who was who, so mm -hmm. you mentioned the rounders, mm -hmm. uh, but there were also the uh, mutual benefit societies, the fraternal organizations, mm -hmm. uh, to where you would pay in as like a 401k yeah. or, or, or an insurance, insurance policy. policy yeah. yeah, that would yeah. be a better way of describing it. It was an insurance policy. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, that was early health insurance That's here right. here in America. That's right. Most people don't realize that, yeah. of course. And, and, and actually what happened is these... Uh, Beneficial societies, uh, uh, they they survived the Great Depression. Some of them had to merge, but mm -hmm. you know they survived the Great Depression, and then they were put out of business because regulations stipulated they had to have so much uh, cash on hand. And of course, they didn't have a yeah lot the of legal cash. the legal reserve requirements. That's right. So so you know that wasn't their thing. They they just charged enough to have just enough money to take care of people when they needed it, and so they didn't have this big buildup. Well, now you had to have this big buildup, and that wasn't the way they operated, and that's how the insurance companies drove them out of business. Yeah, because like the, the legal reserve requirements for, I know for life insurance, I believe uh, uh, they're supposed to keep about 90% of their premiums that come in as, as their legal reserve system. For, I, I don't know. For, the... Yeah, I don't, I don't know the exact number, but I know it's, I know it's very high, and mm -hmm. that's why in the Great Depression, 99% of the life insurance that was enforced, life insurance annuities, well, annuities are life insurance product anyway, but 99% um, of the life insurance companies remained solvent and, and did just fine. Uh, the other 1% were, there were mergers and things like that, but you didn't have insurance companies going belly up like you did banks. And I think there were like roughly 9,000 banks, maybe 10,000 that, that uh, failed during the Great Depression, mm -hmm. and that was partly due to the Federal Reserve because, yeah, yeah well, you know, banks used to have more reserve, um, and in some states, the banks were required to have state bonds for part of the reserve, which of course were, you know, not worth <laughs> their face value, right? And so, you know, it really was a kind of a crazy system. And then they expanded the currency, contracted the currency, and created some major problems with cash flow, which ended up in, in really, uh, some people believe that even was the cause of the depression. So that was really, um, again, banking regulations, which hurt mm -hmm. the public. And, and I think this is this message of how regulations hurt us is not one that the public is very aware of. One of the things I'm excited about showing it for pharmaceutical regulations is because the pharmacy industry has been so well studied, there are so many publications out there that you can actually make some of these calculations. But in my experience, whenever you even approach that with other regulations, uh, the numbers are almost just as bad. So in other words, regulations seem universally to harm us instead of help us, and yet the public perception is just the opposite. Well, if if, uh, if the free market had a 13-year education program to sell their to sell their values, then uh, yeah, people would probably embrace that. 
how people go to religious schools to learn about to learn to worship religion people go to government schools to learn to worship government mm -hmm. so yeah but the the general public is not receptive to the message of regulation is bad and they can they can look at regulations we were talking about this before we started recording um, up where I live it's a small town area in the UP I, I refer to it as Bear Saskatchewan and uh, there was a um, local guy that wanted to open up a, a chain restaurant in town and some of the local restaurant owners are mom and pop places not chain uh, you know like like john's italian food stuff mm -hmm. like that or, or giovanni's probably it would be but anyway uh they were complaining saying no 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 we don't want this applebee's here or whatever the chain was you know because they're going to put all of us out of business and blah, blah, blah. And, and they're doing that just for protectionism, which is the same thing that you'll get out of a lot of the regulation prohibiting new companies from coming in there and, and just all the other stuff. So I mean, it's, it's really horrible. Mm -hmm. So where can people get your books? Do you got a website? Yes, I do. It's ruart.com, just like my last name, R-U-W-A-R-T.com. Okay. And what does the future hold for you? Well, uh, obviously the Death by Regulation book that's coming out next spring is going to consume me until then and after then because marketing, of course, a book is, is pretty intensive too. And I'd really like to get it out there because, like I said, it's, it's, I think it's really the first, well, I shouldn't say the absolute first, but let me say it's maybe what I perceive to be the most compelling demonstration of how regulations are harmful. And it's in an area that affects us all, mm -hmm. health. So I think it's a very important book in that it will not only demonstrate the harm that regulation does, but I think will really help people understand that they need to uh, be more appreciative of the fact that drugs are not the end all that prevention is important, that's another theme of the book, and that when we regulate, we take choice away from ourselves. So I think that's something that hopefully will resonate with people once they read it and understand it. Okay. Do you have any other closing comments, anything that you want to share on the way out? Uh, well, I'd just like to briefly mention uh, short answers to the tough questions, which basically uh, helps libertarians explain our message in sound bites, because people don't generally want to listen to an hour lecture from us, <laughs> and I don't blame them. <laughs> so, so I think it's it's important when we try to present these things to other people to do it in an attractive way, in a way that gets their interest up and curiosity and makes them want to learn more. So that's the purpose of short answers. Okay. Well, thanks again for coming out to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, and thanks for coming on the show and talking to me for a little bit. I uh, hope I run into you in the future, and and thanks again. And one more time, is it ruart.com? Ruart.com. R-U-W-A-R-T.com. Okay. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed today's presentation. For more information on the fest, go to mplfest.org. That's MikePapaLimaFest.org. And check out LouSandershow.com for more of my content, which will be forthcoming. Thank you very much. Thank mm -hmm. you.